0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. I'm currently at the Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs, and i having a great time just finishing up a, a, a real fun banquet, Celebrating the superstars. And uh, we're afterwards. And I've got Storm Humbert, who is a winner in volume 36, who's um, um, said, Yeah, let's do the podcast talking about this amazing new uh, project I've got going, which I'm very anxious about because it's with Storm as well as um, a myriad of other past uh, Rise of Future winners. Now, for those of you who don't know, Storm is a 33 year old writer who lives in Michigan. He's been writing for 10 years. He's published in multiple magazines and he was a winner, like I said, in volume 36. Most recent is The Librarian, which is a collection with Air and Nothingness Press and of Wizards and Wolves, a tribute to anthology for Dave Farland published with Wordfire Press. Welcome, Storm.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so I'm so excited about this project. And as soon as you gave me this, I said, I gotta figure, I gotta schedule in somehow or another to talk about this because it is so important. Because you got all the winners. Yeah,
1: thank. I mean, it's I'm, we're excited about it, too, because it's it's our first thing we're doing together. We started this small press called A Calendar of Fools, and uh, we want to put out uh, unique books, whether they end up being uh, anthologies like this or, or other kinds of things, collections, with the kind of ethos that we were kind of endowed with at Writers of the Future, which is to give back, to help the writing, to build a stronger community, to help writers to um, become better, sharpen their craft. And I think this kind of um, first anthology is a real step in that direction.
0: Yeah. No, so now let's talk about. You're doing this as a Kickstarter. Yes. So let's just talk about the Kickstarter mentality, how that works, because it's it's a it's taking publishing by storm in actual fact. So how is it? You know, a little bit of how it works because obviously, this is the Rise of Feature podcast, and right. people are listening to it to find out okay, how do I get published? How do I, what's my next step? How do I do it? So, let's discuss that for a bit, please.
1: So, Kickstarter is great for publishing because what it lets you do is it builds a community around your project, lets people invest in your project. And from a logistics perspective, it is basically a great pre order kind of mechanism to so that you're not like publishing more than you need to, or you're creating the right amount of hard pieces like hard um copies Mm -hmm. of your work uh you know how many you need to ship out and it lets you kind of uh create a community around your work it lets you engage in kind of a a deeper level than just publishing something through um amazon and saying hey my book's out there i wish you'd buy it if you go to kickstarter and you back a project you get put in the acknowledgments. uh you get to read it before other people can buy it through Amazon, because you know we'll you get to read it before other people can get it Um, You get to get all kinds of other perks. Like We have add-ons like if you're a writer, um, you can buy critiques from us, from writers and from our guest authors, from Calendar of Fools authors and from our guest authors. You can get all other kinds of cool stuff. Uh, Wolf Moon is giving us some seats in some of his classes. Mm -hmm. Um, We, uh, Some of us who teach classes will be offering classes as add-ons and things like that um, or or maybe stretch goals if we get that far. Mm -hmm. Um, We just... It gives you so many other tools to engage with your audience. And I think that's one of the unique things that Kickstarter allows you to do over just publishing your book and putting it out there.
0: Also, to the degree that you've spent the time to build a community yourself, you have that that advantage to make a, a successful Kickstarter. Right. And I know Brandon Sanderson, he was on a, a panel that I had at at um, Fanex last year. And he said, yeah, you know, Kickstarter is great, but... Let me caution you. you got to have a fan base. you got to have somebody there to make it go to be able to get $32 million. Right. You know?
1: Lucky for us, we don't want $32 million. Okay, good. (laughs) Because I don't think we have that fan base yet. (laughs) Um, But I think we do have a significant enough base, and and we do have enough um, people who know our work and are interested in our work. And... Given the unique thing that this uh, anthology is trying to do and that it's trying to entertain and to teach, I think people will want to learn from what we're doing in this anthology also. Um, Because the unique thing about it is it has 16 stories, four reprints, 12 originals, but it also has 16 craft essays. So each time you read a story, it will be followed by a craft essay explaining to you something, some element of the craft that you just experienced taking it apart for you, showing you uh, how to build it and how to execute it on the page and what it does for you uh, as a writer.
0: And the part that touches my heart so dearly is that all 16 are Rise of the Future winners. Yes, we are. Which is just way cool. And that's why every one of you 2 million people listening to this podcast need to go and sign up for this quick starter because this is going to be going out as part of the announcement of the Kickstarter for this project. Ben, we're going to go more into this now. So the book is called Inner Workings. So that, what you just said, describes a little bit why you picked that title. But how'd you come up with the idea of of amassing all these winners to put together an anthology?
1: So it was kind of a slow process. We After So our cohort was unique because I'm in 36, and there are people in 36, 37, and some in 38 that are in this group. But it's mostly 36 and 37 writers because because of COVID. We all went to the same workshop and went to the same gala. So we were kind of a class together, even though we're two different years. And so we had this larger cohort than normal Mm -hmm. to kind of come together and learn from and uh, help each other out. So we had this unique community that we got to build because of a unique experience and a unique point in history. And we found just how beneficial it was for us and kind of how fortifying it is to have that that community that you're learning from and a part of. Absolutely. Um, And so we want to kind of invite people into that community. We want to show you some of the things we've been kind of uh, cribbing off of each other to improve our own crafts.
0: I get it. So now you've also got Carrie English who was definitely not thirty six and thirty seven so right. how'd you she's one of the she's one of the um add-ons
1: yeah our feature authors are uh they are uh further in their careers than most of us are in thirty six and thirty seven um, they're more established and they have unique things to offer uh that are above and beyond what we have so they are our feature authors um, and that is Carrie English Wolf moon Martin shoemaker and Eric James stone
0: all four amazing authors and that's absolutely you know um cheers to you on that that's that's really good and then you've also got you're edited by zach b
1: yes yeah he is our our fearless editor um he he is in my cohort he's a 36 just like me and uh when you know it was kind of a group coming together to come up with the idea for this anthology like how we were going to do it um and we just kind of chose Zach to edit it because it seemed like a, a beast of a job and he didn't say no <laughs> um, but he's he is he's a very good editor um, I think is something that we found out and he's kind of found out as we've gone through this process he's, he's good at it um, he's been doing a great job editing these stories and the craft essays um, he gave me edits on my novel that were fantastic He's he's very good at it
0: oh good so now on is there a specific theme for this
1: uh so it's the theme would just be I say it coheres around the idea of education. Like the craft essays are kind of what define it as a thing different than your normal anthology. Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, it is strictly science fiction and fantasy. Like those are the two genres that are represented here. Some of it can get dark, but I wouldn't call any of it horror. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I would say it's a science fiction and fantasy anthology for sure.
0: Okay. So now now as we could also take advantage of this podcast to help pitch your stories. Yeah. So What's your story? Well, oh, my
1: story is it was a finalist in the Writers of the Future contest before I won. Uh, and it was one that Dave almost held for a published finalist. And I haven't been able to sell it since then. I've, I've sold every other story that got placed in the Writers of the Future, and even ones that didn't. But I didn't sell this one. And uh, Destiny. Yeah. And uh, so I, I changed the title since then. It was submitted as Drift. Now it's called Teach Them to Yearn. Um, it's gotten some edits from the wonderful... You know, peer my peers in this group calendar of fools. They've been very helpful in kind of sharpening it further. Um, And it is, uh, do you want like a little plot? Sure. So it's it's uh, it's science fiction, and uh, in it some somebody is a system mapper. This is a future in which humanity has is traversing um, interstellar space. They are mapping out systems for like mining operations and even colonies in some instances. But this guy's job, he's in an AI ship and he goes from system to system and he makes maps um, so that they know what's in that system and if there's anything of value and what is it, where is it, all that kind of stuff. And he's kind of in a bad place because the corpse, he calls it is uh, kind of dwindling. It's kind of falling off. The expansion of humanity is uh, hitting a wall. Um, People aren't as excited about the stars anymore because we haven't found what we're looking for out here. We haven't found that kind of um, other waking mind. We haven't found aliens. We haven't found any kindred spirits. We haven't found what we're looking for. And uh, so it's kind of uh, contracting. And he just, it makes him sad. But then in the system, he finds what is clearly an intelligently made structure. And the story is about him studying it um ignoring protocol how he's supposed to do it because he just has to know that human desire that we need to know things sometimes and um the the story is about him um kind of discovering that it's more than he ever thought it could
0: have been good good so now when you when you put this project together is that any did you just send your call out to all winners all fellows that whoever responded and they're automatically in
1: anybody in our cohort who wanted to be a part of it uh they could it ended up there was about 12 of us um we if we would have had 15 of us we would have gone with that it would mm-hmm. have been fine um but so there's 12 of us so 12 original stories and then our feature authors are all reprints um so 12 originals, four reprints.
0: Right. So now with your um, – I mean, this is, this is clever because you've got all of your – each individual audience you bring to the party. Yeah. So that you have combined a huge, potentially huge audience. Ideally. Yeah. So with – on deciding what stories, would everybody said I'm going to do this one here, or was there somebody else like – was it Zach or somebody saying as the editor, okay, do you have – more of this type of a story?
1: We did. So nobody had, like, their stories unselected or selected for them. At some point in the submission process, we found that we had a lot of science fiction stories. So we were... People who hadn't submitted a story, I would be like, hey, if you have a fantasy story you'd like to submit so we can balance it out, that would be great. Um, And we ended up with a balance. Um, I don't think anyone ended up submitting a story that wasn't their favorite one. Mm -hmm. We just happened to end up with a really good balance. I think it's almost 50-50.
0: Oh, good. Okay, now on... You recently attended Writers of the Future Mm -hmm. as as a winner. And again, this is, we've got people listening to this podcast are themselves aspiring writers. So, what about the workshop or Writers of the Future did you find the most helpful for you?
1: So, I think, you know, it's only been about two years for Mm -hmm. me since I went. So, I think there's a lot of the stuff that I learned there that I don't. I haven't moved far enough yet to understand how valuable it was, you know, cause it hasn't touched yeah. my career yet. Yeah. Um, but at this point, the most, one of the most valuable things is just the community and the support both from, um, you know, you guys writers of the future yeah. and author services and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also from each other, just meeting like-minded, similarly skilled people who have the same ambitions and want to move in the same direction. And we realize we can all help each other out. We can all pull each other forward. Um, I think that community, has been one of the most valuable resources that I came away from
0: that way. That was something that I know that um, Owen Hubbard definitely had when he was writing the the fiction in the 30s and 40s, what later became known as the golden age of science fiction, when he finally moved into science fiction, Mm -hmm. there was that sense of lending a helping hand. He was writing essays, uh, many of which you studied in the the workshop. And if you Mm -hmm. did the online writing course, they're definitely in there too. But the whole intention is to, I guess it's the common term now is paying it forward. Right. But his, you know, his, been, his whole sense of it was just lending a helping hand, you know? Yeah. And so now the sense of your book here is to do that. So when you have your little critiques or your educational essays, mm-hmm. so the purpose of that is to educate and give somebody, here's a tool. Do you break it down so that it's, or how do you break it down so that it's digestible?
1: So in mine, my essay, you know, because we were putting this together, kind of when Dave passed, and I realized and what my story is. It's an interstellar alien object. There's an element of wonder in that, and Dave wrote a lot about wonder. So my essay is about wonder, and I get to use Dave's definition in that. So that was cool for me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but so what I how I go about it, and all the essays are different. They're all great, and they're all different, both in their approach and what they're talking about. Right. Um, how I go about it is defining what wonder is. Naming it's the parts that make it up. It's elements, and uh, discussing how they play together and why they're all necessary. Um, so, what it's defining wonder, um, saying what makes what constitutes wonder, what pieces you need to build wonder on the page, and then also showing how to execute wonder once you get to it. Like, how do you capitalize on the wonder that you've built? Right. Um, so I kind of t- I go kind of go from like seed to to flower.
0: Good. So now, your journey as an author, did you start off like I was six years old and I saw a book and went, what's that? I want to do that? Or how'd you, no. how'd you come about?
1: Uh, so for one, I'm an incredibly slow reader. So I didn't read for fun until I was 19 or 20 years old. Maybe you could say I started in high school in my senior because I had a great senior English teacher and he assigned great books. Uh-huh. Um, but I really came to reading late. So... Most of my peers have read more books than me, and over the course of their lives will read more books than me, because I'm just slow. But I came to writing because I took a great writing workshop in my undergrad at Ohio State, led by Lee K. Abbott, who was the uh, head of the program then. He became my undergrad mentor. Um, and he changed my life, because he showed me, he gave me access to a thing that I'd never thought about before. I never thought about writing my own stories before. I took, I took creative writing because it was an automatic A. And because I could string a sentence together and I I knew it would be fine. But you know, he made he showed me how much he loved the craft and the the depth with which he approached it. It Made me, it seemed like a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I love challenging myself. So I kind of threw myself into it and I loved it. And that's why it's so important to me in this to, to teach, to try to inspire people to give them tools to do their own art. Um, because I, I think it's Vonnegut, he, he wrote that letter to that class, wrote him a letter and he wrote him a letter back about what's the most important thing and like, um, like basically like every person should practice an art even if they do it poorly. Art is a, a human experience. It's how we know ourselves, how we experience and contemplate the world. Mm-hmm. So even if someone doesn't want to be a professional writer like I want to be, even if they just want to tell some stories for fun, um, growing in your craft is a very validating experience. Learning is validating. And I think it's just really important to kind of build that into your own goals and your own aspirations is to help other people enjoy the thing that you enjoy too.
0: That's great. So you live in a home, you got a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. So how's that accomplished financially? (laughs) So
1: I am a legal technical writer for my day job. Uh, My wife is an attorney and uh, luckily. You know, she's an attorney. I'm not, so, uh, but I get to work four days a week. She supports that. I'm very lucky in Mm -hmm. that. Um, But also, um, if you really do want to be a writer, you'll, you know, I found a job that let me
0: do this. Which is a good point. I know several others, too, who I've talked to over the years, they just make it go. They just, they're that dedicated, and it's just, no, I'm going to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I found a job that they're very flexible with my hours. They, They let me work just four days a week. I also have unlimited PTO not un, they're very it's not unlimited there's just not a cap so
0: so what is, what is it you said unlimited, unlimited
1: paid time off okay I have it. unlimited vacation time functionally um as long as I get my work done right uh which is great it lets me come to things like this and you know hang out with my people and mm-hmm. um just grow in my craft and my, my um my career
0: that's great I mean, that's way cool that you've got the ability to work and get the, the need amount of time off to do your writing. So what is your end game now as a as an author? Um, I'm working mostly
1: on novels now. Um, I still write short stories. I mean, I actually published more short stories last year than I have up to that point in my career. So yeah. I still write a fair amount of short stories, but most of my, you know, butt in the seat writing time is spent doing novels, um, mostly high, epic fantasy, high fantasy stuff.
0: That's good just an interesting side point, Ron Collins, who was a winner in Volume 15. His 24-hour story, he sold. Mm-hmm. He's got a nine-volume series now that's come out based on that short story that, really? that he wrote in his 20 his 24-hour story, and that's been his most successful series based on that. It's just a mate. I've heard so many stories about winners who sold their 24-hour story. Most everybody does, mm-hmm. and. How it did so well, which is, for some people, before coming into the workshop, it's, it was a point of unreality that one that yeah. could even write a story in 24 hours, let alone make it so it's, it's sellable. I know. And
1: uh, so I have also sold my 24-hour story. I don't have a contract yet, so I can't say where I sold it, but I have sold it. I'm very excited that it will come out. Um And yet that that exercise was so huge for me when I did it because for, I think, six weeks after I came back, I did do a short story a week um, because I wrote my 24-hour story in seven hours. And then I went to the bar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We don't say that.
1: We go to the bar con. Yes, the bar con. (laughs) Yes. I went there to hang out. It was strictly for the glasses of water and the company.
0: (laughs) Yes. Amazing company. (laughs) Which, which is amazing how the judges tend yes. to drink a lot of water, too. Yes, they do. Yes. So on, um, so on this, so what's the plan now? Because you've, you know, Inner Workings is the name of your anthology, but A Calendar of Fools is the publishing house. So what's what do you have planned on that?
1: Uh, so there's six of us that actually own Calendar of Fools of our larger cohort of about 20 or so writers. And so we we come up with ideas together. We have some that we have uh, thought about and we've discussed already. Um, I have an anthology that I would like to edit um, as maybe our next project or the one after that. But it's all of the things that we discuss are generally they are unique projects that are about bringing something to the Specific community that isn't really there right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that there aren't you know books on craft or something like that but i think that we're doing it in a in a fairly new kind of way and that you know you read a story and then you read a craft essay about that story that's discussing a piece of craft that was featured there a piece of craft an element of craft that was
0: featured there and it's telling you how to do it which is which is way cool definitely way cool so on your structure of your company or your your uh, press Mm -hmm. So how's that work? You've got six people that, you know, is it...
1: We all have different roles. Um, I'm the managing member, so I sign the contracts and um, I have to handle all the busy work of taxes and all the stuff I didn't go to school for and don't know how to do. <laughs> um, so that's a learning experience. I am only beginning. Um, but um, so... Zach's editing this anthology. Andy Dibble, who's also um, he's, he's part of Calendar of Fools. He's edited before, so we have editors in there. We have people who do graphics who have helped us put you know, like the bookmark I gave you. Um, that was um, David and FJ and other people have collaborated to make our art work for us for our promotional. So are start. they
0: part of uh, Calendar of Fools as well? Yeah. So it's the writers and illustrators.
1: No, no, no. These these are writers but they have digital they might do digital graphics for their day job or have that skill set that they can bring to like uh one of the the owners eric he he has laid out a lot of his own novels so he's doing the layout for our anthology of putting it in vellum putting it in a nice finished um kind of state for us to publish it and we, we all have different skills that we bring in to help us pull off these
0: these publications yeah all right so now is it is this something that you got six principal members of the of the company and then you invite in past winners what do you envision as because i just had somebody else on earlier today who's got you know they've, they've created a similar type thing or actually mm-hmm. uh, yesterday I, I interviewed and um they write in this whole fantasy universe and mm-hmm. so they by invitation will invite other authors to come in and start contributing to that mm-hmm. so how does it work for you how are you going to grow your your group
1: so like we said, we're really kind of focused on building and helping the community. So we hope that brings a community kind of to us. We, mm-hmm. we want to cultivate a community of of learners and teachers and just writers because we found that uh, it's very cool when you're a writer to just be around other writers and be able to talk about writing. We don't get to do it with normal humans. <laughs> they just, <laughs> they're just they not that into it. Yeah. They don't care. So uh, if you can have a place where you can go, and just talk about writing, and be excited about writing, and get better at writing. Um, and people there who want to do that same thing—I um, think that's ultimately kind of the, um, I guess, a support base or um, fan base, whatever that, that we want to cultivate—is right. uh, that
0: kind of um, zone. Okay. Do you guys have a website that's that's going to be your go-to place for people to find and discover and have a community? That people can discuss back, like a forum.
1: We we are going to have a website. Uh, we don't yet have a website, but we do. We are active on social media, so people can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, and so then. Therefore, if they do that, once we once the site's up, they'll be able to get in there with the you know the the forums or whatever other tools we have, mm-hmm. so they can connect with each other and with us. But um, for now, those social media are kind of how we are connecting. And then as we, because um, the website is. Website design is not one of the skills we have amongst our membership. <laughs> so we are uh, finding that we are slower in this to get, get our website up and running, especially with all the features that we'd like it to have for um, people to come in and uh, talk about the works, the books, and just kind of talk about fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we will have a site. But right now, the uh, the QR code will connect them people to the Kickstarter and to our various social media platforms, so they can connect with us that way.
0: Okay. Now, on again on on your publishing house, the Calendar of Fools. How do you come up with that name?
1: That's actually a fun story. Uh, so that is based on. Well, we were at Writers of the Future. We were constantly told that we are the future of genre fiction because we our young writers early in our career, and we're going to be the ones setting trends and mm-hmm. shaping the genre as we move forward.
0: And that's born to be, born out to be true so many times over the last 40 years.
1: Right. So we are the, like, we're tomorrow. We're the future. We're what's coming. Right. And so there's a quote by um, a man named Ogmandino, and it's actually a quote that's supposed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek about not procrastinating, but what he says is, uh, tomorrow is only found in the calendar of fools. As in, don't put off to tomorrow what you could do today. Right. But we are kind of turning that and like, we're tomorrow. So this is the calendar of fools. This is where you find us.
0: Well, that's clever. I definitely would not have added any other combination of of numbers to come up with that total
1: yeah it's uh it's it's a trip to get there. It is something we have to explain, <laughs> but it is it's also just kind of uh, we we heard it and it was kind of catchy and so yeah,
0: it's very catchy. When did you conceive this idea of was it at the workshop or: I think post? Short,
1: shortly after I think it was shortly after the workshop that we kind of settled in like that we wanted to put first it came that we wanted to put out a work together. we mm-hmm. all wanted to do this, and so then it became what's the easiest way to do that? Well, you have to make an LLC. You have to make a company to kind of run it all through or else it gets kind of messy.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so then it was like finding people to help us, you know, draw up articles of in incorporation and do all this on no budget because we're writers. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we have found people that, you know, are willing to help us out and help us do these things. So we we are an LLC. We're all set up. Um, we're going to be publishing through KDP and um, maybe distributing through um, other – we'll be using probably BookFunnel, I think, to distribute our eBooks. Sure. Um, and it's just been, it's been a lot of different interconnected learning processes to Mm -hmm. go from, Hey, we want to make a book together to how do we make a book together? (laughs) It's, it's a, it was a long process. And we've, we've been, we've really been trying to take our time, especially with Kickstarter to make sure that we do it right. Um, we really wanted to have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed and we're there now.
0: Good. So when's this Kickstarter going to be launching?
1: We're going to launch it in early March. We're in the promotional phase now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're just kind of, you know, doing that last little bit. We have some last-minute content things we need to check, which, you know, if people want to follow us on our social media things through the... um, social media platforms through the the QR code. We'll be announcing those on there. And people following the Kickstarter, we can announce it on there as well. So wherever you follow us, we'll let you know because there are some possible cool content additions that might still happen Right. that I don't want to announce to put pressure on people who have not said that they will give us these content things. But um, I'm very excited about them. But so the anthology itself is all set of The Like our stories, our craft essays, that stuff's already set in stone. That's done. Um, it's just other little things. That um, good. might be added.
0: Good. Now, when you did the workshop, mm-hmm. you had uh, Jody, Lynn, I, and Tim Powers as your instructors, and then you had other uh, guest instructors. What? Well, we had David Farland. Oh, David Farland. Yeah. So that was the last time he. Yes, it was. He taught. Okay, good. So it was David Farland and Tim Powers. Yeah. So, um, between them speaking and the other um, guest judges. What are some of the more memorable points of the workshop for you?
1: Well, I'd say one of the most memorable things of the workshop was just um, experiencing Dean Wesley Smith. Um, <laughs> that was that was fun and educational. And again, that's the things that he was teaching are probably things I haven't moved far enough forward yet to really get how valuable they were. Like I know they were valuable, but they yeah. haven't like touched my career yet. Um, but you know, just learning. Watching Tim and Dave have such different approaches to fiction, but often come to the same kinds of answers um, was very interesting to kind of witness and take that in and let that affect like how I look at fiction and how I perceive what I'm doing in my processes. And there was a lot of professionalization advice that has been very, like, we're a professional publisher now. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that we learned there that are already shaping our ability to interact in a professional space in the creative
0: writing environment that's great any of the um actually one of the things i find always humorous and i think a lot of the writers when they're kind of like a little bit what's happening here where the judges don't all agree you know they they sometimes like oh i totally disagree with that and you know should you promote yourself at a convention, should you be on the panel and have your book in front of it? You know, mm-hmm. you got someone says, "Absolutely," and someone says, "No way." You yeah. know, just and that's one thing about the rise of future is it's not like this is how you do it. These are ways that I have done it that you can then decide and you can pick and choose yourself. Yeah,
1: yeah. You see, you see a lot of different examples of how you can be successful. That there is no one track success Mm -hmm. because all of these judges have taken different roads as a general rule to get to where they are but they're all where they are yeah and so it's it gives you kind of um a lot of confidence that you can find your way to because they all found different ways
0: yeah and ultimately it will be your way and not larry niven's way or tim power's way
1: because those ways don't necessarily exist anymore um like even the idea of being a fully only traditionally published author is quickly dying.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and as much as I don't like that because I don't like all the new skills I'm having to acquire to just be a writer, um, it, does, it will ultimately, I think, provide more freedom in how I release my work and how my work is disseminated to people who want to uh, consume it.
0: Yeah, and at some point then everything that Dean Wesley Smith was talking about on his panel will start making sense. Yes. <laughs> as that starts getting more and more confronted in your in your writing world. Yeah. Cuz he's definitely a major proponent of very much for indie. Yes, very very much. So, there's also a lot of essays in there by Owen Hubbard. Anything in particular of those that resonated best with you? The Factory.
1: The idea that I am a story factory and that um, kind of divorcing like
0: the manuscript factory for anybody who wants to check out what that is it's called the manuscript factory. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah,
1: yes, the manuscript factory. I've forgotten the title. Sure. Um, but the idea that I am a factory, I am a uh, machine mm-hmm. that I can turn on and off, I don't, that it kind of divorces the kind, the more. Ethereal or magical, yes. Elements of what writing is and storytelling and the muse. I need my pipe
0: in this kind of tobacco, and I need my circular tray with seven shot glasses full of my favorite scotch. You know,
1: like no, no more Goethe with the rotting apple in the in the desk drawer. Um, But the idea that yes, there is there is a kind of a a special thing that we're doing, but also that we can do it when we want. We don't need to wait for you know the the mood to strike us or for the muse to sit on our shoulder. Um, Jack Lennon has a quote that says, uh, inspiration must be chased down with a club. And I think that that essay kind of embodies that, Mm -hmm. that that if you sit down, you're a professional, you're good at what you do, you know what a story is, you know what characters are, you know people, and you put them all together and you make something that is engaging and exciting and um, special and draws people in. And you can just do it. And you can do it in seven hours. You can do it in 24 hours. You can do it in a week. Um, and yeah, just just kind of that affirmation that you can do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there's another essay, too, that I really like a lot. You mentioned Jack London that Hubbard wrote about. I think it's called Search for Research. Mm. And there he goes in how Jack London, when he'd get dry on a story, he'd and be out of money he'd go to a friend and borrow a dollar go to the bar that in the on the on the docks yeah He'd see somebody just came in from a ship and just ply them with some you know a couple of drinks and tell them a story and then he'd get all reinvigorated and he'd go back and write another story yeah not necessarily that was what he told him it was just that gave him that idea started turning again
1: yeah i mean because uh, it it wasn't when we went there, but I know that the 24-hour story used to involve going out and talking to a Pre-pandemic, person. yeah. Yes, pre-pandemic. Um, ours still had, like, the the little— uh, The object? The object. We still had the object and, and all that stuff, but we weren't interviewing people. But, yeah, same deal. Like, you just find—and an object is fine, too. Just find something that you can—that can make you think in a different way, that you can twist around— Um, that you can play with. Mm -hmm. Because that's what you're doing when you meet somebody new and they tell you a story. You're like asking a bunch of what ifs about how you can adapt that or what it might mean or what this or what that. Same with an object. Like I had had a a white stone. And in my 24-hour story, that becomes a bone chip. So just thinking about one thing in a different way can, like kind of turning it, can really kind of twist your perspective and let you, get you into a creative
0: space. Yeah. Yeah, so... On um on that workshop, well, actually the whole week. So you've made your what it turns will probably turn out to be lifelong friends mm-hmm. based on past years. Yeah. You know, I've I've interviewed like Elizabeth Wayne from volume nine, you know, is still friends with some of her fellow winners that year. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like thirty years ago. You know, so right. um it's amazing how tight-knit group you know have
1: have there been uh, multiple marriages too or just just the one
0: there have been a couple but the most famous is the is the dean and chris yes and that was rise the future's first romance first marriage and (laughs) they've been going strong for you know since the beginning almost 40 years now
1: but yeah i mean there's something special about meeting people who are into this thing that's such a big part of who you are it kind of pulls you all together and makes you want to to be friends and work together and just share it.
0: Yeah, I've and it's interesting too how when you're around that that just the whole space is so much with all these creative people in one space at one time and the judges and all the supporters support group you've got making it happen. It becomes almost you kind of like a no brainer how you can just come out with a 24 hour story. there's that one Star Trek episode where Bones is at, they're on this one planet and there's this machine, and he gets whatever was this ray that comes into him and he knows how to operate to handle James who who needs a a massive surgery. And I said, of course, why didn't I realize this? Why didn't I know this? You know, when he has that infusion there and then when they leave, then it, it all disappears. It goes away, you know, and I've, People in there, there. So it's also easy just to build, pound it out, and then when you're in the environment with not so many supportive cast, it's not as easy to pound out as much yeah. as you did there.
1: It's just like uh, even even writing sprints are something that writers do. Like you get you get a, at least one partner, and you go and you say like, we're gonna race to see who can write. 600 words or whatever it is you just you just or you set a certain amount of time and say we're writing for this amount of time then we're going to stop like having somebody to hold you accountable like we're both here to create we're both here to do a job even just one other person to push you forward like that can just totally change your productivity and your mindset and get you into that kind of flow state that you need to be in to just create
0: right have you had a problem at all with i, I think it gets pretty heavily either disabused or described in different ways writer block
1: not in a long time um i think partially i, I mean i do have to admit it's because i have uh, more freedom in my writing than other people do i i can i can move my writing time around i can shift my hours i have i have a lot of freedom that if i don't feel like doing it right now i can wait until i feel like doing it mm-hmm. um, but i do make sure i do it every day um but no, I, I don't really because I think, I think I'm think i to a point in my kind of process that I realize that I just need to keep putting words on the page. And even if I end up deleting them, it still keeps me moving forward. And I just need to keep moving forward. And when I go back over and edit, you know, I, I might cut everything I wrote in the last 30 minutes or 40 minutes. But I wrote it, and it got me to something that I do need to write. Mm-hmm. So I think... Just the idea that the, the words I'm putting down have value, even if that value is is to get me to the words I need to find. So, But I did used to have a problem with writer's block, and especially before the 24-hour story when I was writing short stories a lot, because I would spend a month on a short story, and it would just eat at me and eat at me and eat at me. And it's such a small thing. It's so easy to overwork such mm-hmm. a small um, story. And I ended up overworking them because I just would had this need to make them perfect. I'd draft them seven, eight, nine, ten times and now I also decided to be a three draft writer was very big for that I draft things three times I'm done with them um,
0: and if they and don't then when you get to the point of Dean one time right and that's what Hubbard was too he, right he, he sold 92% of his work first time for submission mm-hmm. first draft
1: and I've only done that once um, so well no I guess three times twice now twice now um, on a, a first draft I'm um, doing that.
0: That's way cool. Yeah. that's very It is cool.
1: It is weird, though, because those stories do feel different when they come out, and you just sit there at the end, and you know that that's already done, that everything's how it's supposed to be, and you're not going to touch it again.
0: And I've only done that uh, two times. Yeah. Dean talks about that, too, is, since you brought him up as somebody that you like. Yeah. You know, respect. He likes it, like, every time you edit a story... Mm-hmm it starts off and it's unique yep it's got all the it's got the ridges and it's got the sharp points and stuff like that and then you start putting it in the um the the stone smoother you know the, mm-hmm. it turns into that and so you, you grind it a little bit more and it gets a little bit smooth you grind it a little bit more and it gets smoother and yet yeah. and then pretty soon it's totally polished and it comes out and oh it's, it's a pretty polished rock that looks just like all the other pretty polished rocks yeah. and it loses that personality that was your story to begin mm-hmm. with and so that's why he just says you know I write and i send it off i write send it off and i think that's why
1: i'm still comfortable as a three draft writer too because every time you take a pass you are going to be dulling the kind of special thing mm-hmm. that made you interested or excited about the story in the first place.
0: creative spark yeah
1: yes you're going to eventually work that all the way out of it because And so the fewer drafts you can do the more of that you're going to preserve because that's the part you're going to cling to the most and refuse to cut the most but the longer you work it the more you're going to convince yourself that that's the part that needs to go yeah to make it like a story you could sell um and that's not the part that needs
0: to go it's interesting when i was when we came out with the stories from the golden age which are all the pulp stories that Hubbard wrote when i'm proofreading them I ran into this weird phenomenon, because there was no word processing back then. Everything was done in a typewriter. And he'd be reading along, and all of a sudden you come to another page, and wait, I read that already. What he would do, because he would put the paper in, in the typewriter and he because um another author told me about you know how he did it, um, he'd look towards the wall and he'd start typing, and he the story would be materializing and you know, in his vision in front of him, he'd be typing out the story as it was happening. And if there's something that was like, Oh no, that's not right, he'd go back a page, he'd start from there and he'd type through that mistake or through that part that didn't work and go on there. And so in a proofreading, you'd find that, okay, now you get up to point and you go, Okay. He goes back to an earlier point and then types through that and just boom, that and he finishes a story like that.
1: Cycling. Um, that is uh, something that Hubbard did. It's something that Dean does, and it is something that I do every now and then. When I'm really going, yeah. I do cycling. Also, like you, just if you if you find that you're flagging at all, you go back up and you gather some momentum to you know read back through what you just wrote and edit it. But then you just explode through that that piece again, and you you cycle through it. And uh, that was in in my two times of selling first drafts. That was how I wrote them. You, you you just end up cycling through them,
0: yeah. And just boom, and then send it off. And the other thing too is, sometimes writers, and I'm going to discuss that a little bit here. Sometimes writers get into, this is my story, and it's like they own this. that story equals them, mm-hmm. and they're missing the whole point of being a writer. Right. A writer writes. You know, you, I get questions when I do panels for Rise of the Future. how many times can we edit it and resubmit it you know and instead of getting the point you need to actually write something else yes you know
1: i think one of the main um things that writers of the future as a contest gives to writers who are submitting to it is a deadline and you should use that deadline to produce new work um because when you're early in your career, I feel like people struggle to produce. Um, you get really hung up about I'm not good enough yet. I need to pass over my work a bunch of times to polish it. And you can really think, oh, if this it'll win next time if I just make it a little bit better here. And that's not the case. Right. You need to, if you know, take your honorable mention, silver honorable mention, whatever you got. Um, even if it was a rejection, my first pro sale was a straight-up rejection from Riders of the Future and it's because it wasn't the right market you guys don't do gritty headshots in (laughs) in writers of the future and so it wasn't the right fit Um, but it worked at apex
0: and that's an important point that people have to really know just because you were rejected doesn't mean it was a bad story right it's just maybe it wasn't for our market yeah
1: dave said any any honorable mention a silver honorable mention story i don't remember which one he said it's one or the other that and up those are saleable stories. Silver, silver, silver and up. Yeah. Yeah. Those are saleable stories. Those are stories that that can that can exist in a pro market. And so yeah, I think just use use the contest, use that entry point to so that you make sure you are writing at least four new short stories every year. Um, you should write more than that, mm-hmm. but the contest, if as long as you say that I'm gonna write a new short story every time, you will write at least four new short stories every year.
0: Yeah, there's some writing groups where that was their whole mantra was enter every quarter to rise the future yeah. and we we used to get all types of winners from those writing groups
1: and uh so i i've missed teaching i've started going to cons this year a lot more because i got married last year which so i didn't do cons a lot last year kind of ate into my con budget panda uh, <laughs> so i and i but started totally worthwhile yes yeah, totally worthwhile i mean yeah. i have i have the one ring here in my finger with the elvish and everything um but I started realizing how much I miss teaching. Um, so missing teaching is also a part of why I want to do this anthology. But So I'm starting to teach, a, a, I think, starting in March, I'll be teaching a workshop in my local library. And any genre writers in there, I will be telling them, use writers of the Future. Write a new short story every quarter, Good. Write every quarter. Even if you're just starting writing, do it. Send it in. There's no pressure. If it's bad, no one but the slush reader is going to read it. And Carrie's very nice.
0: And she won't even know your name. No, she won't. Because by the time it makes it to Carrie, it's a number. Yeah. There's no yes, name. It's totally to anonymous.
1: Yeah. So there's just use it as a tool to drive you forward and make you
0: produce more work. Right. So have you read any uh fiction by Mr. Hubbard?
1: Uh yeah. I mean, there's a couple stories in the uh, there's at least one story usually in every anthology. Correct. And I've read um, at least, I think from 35 on, I've read cover to cover. So I've read whatever stories are in there of his. And then we were also told to do, when you guys were kind of piloting the online um, uh, workshop thing, to to do go through and do that. And that also included some of his essays and I think at least one of his stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I have read some.
0: Anything, do you remember any of them that, that you read? I uh, they were so long ago now,
1: um, but yeah. I do remember the one with the... There was one of the pirate, and uh, there were parts of that that stuck in my head for Typewriter a
0: while. Typewriter in the Sky? That might be it. It's the one It's It's a recursive story on authors where, you know, the... Yes, the I do remember that one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that one there has been... That was um, Mike Resnick's favorite story. Okay. Yeah, and uh, because it's about... Horace Hackett, yeah, the author, you know, and he was a hack writer, and it's it's also funny because the alliterative names
1: is a very uh, age defining. Like when you see so like alliterative naming, like if you look at Stan Lee and uh, Marvel comics, uh, then alliterative naming of characters is definitely a dating thing. When you when you see that, like you, you can tell it's like 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah. 60s. Yeah. Um, it's very neat how that kind of was a big thing, and now it's it's
0: nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, there's um I mean there was a movie that came out, you know, maybe half a dozen years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh Stranger than Fiction. Oh, I love that movie. And the reviews were this is Owen Hubbard's typewriter in the sky, which is that that whole theme there where she was typing a story and his he was doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I I really enjoyed Stranger than Fiction. It was it was funny and kind of dark and thought-provoking. But yeah, very good.
0: Yeah, and that's that was that story. It's funny sometimes when you have these stories and somebody when we republished these stories as stories from the golden age, people say, Oh yeah, that's like and they name some story that was written in the sixties or the seventies, and you say, This story was written in nineteen thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. You know? And they go, Oh, they just you know, they start coming in, you know, saying, Oh yeah, that's he copied blah blah blah. No, yeah. this was written thirty years before that.
1: And I was on a panel at at Confusion about why it's important to read like old science fiction and Mm -hmm. fantasy. And so, you know, there's, there's, it's important to know, understand where the tropes and the thing, like the the things that are seen cliche now, it's important to know where all that came from. Um, One just so you understand the genre you're working in, but Mm -hmm. two, so you can play with those things and upset those things and subvert those things. So you have to read your contemporaries, but you also want to read the classics and you want to read people who came before because we're all, as writers in this genre, we all want to find the best parts of that and pull that forward. Mm -hmm. Like You want to keep those kind of magical or special bits of the genre um, and you see it a lot in epic fantasy, actually. If you look at from Dunsany to Tolkien to Martin, the name Drogo is something that each gave a character the name Drogo. Like in, in Lord of the Rings, Drogo is Frodo's father. In um, uh, Game of Thrones, there's Cal Drogo. And they're very clearly nodding to each other like, I exist in a lineage of writers, I am mm-hmm. acknowledging kind of where I come from. Um, you see it like very straightforward and fantasy like that, but you yeah. see it in science fiction in science fiction too. And it's in acknowledging that you're part of a lineage of creative writers um exploring humanity through these same kind of tools and tropes and threads. Um, I think it is a big part of how we build our community.
0: Yeah. The um the famous bar scene in Star Wars, mm-hmm. the dialogue is is almost word for word. The bar scene in um Kingslayer which is a harbor story written in the 40s oh really yeah and it's just the same thing the 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 alien band and he meets the guy at the bar and he's you know he's got a ship to get him off and the just the same thing what happens with Han Solo and Luke Skywalker meeting him in that bar and huh. it's just it's, it's uncanny how they'll pull from that you yeah. know the you know it just it, it works like that and I've interviewed both uh, brandon sanderson and hugh howey and they talked a lot about battlefield earth and what it did for them on writing action you know they learned oh, yeah. how to write fast action and um and hugh Howie said he's read battlefield earth seven times and he said he can almost recite all the different parts of it now but he just he loves that book it's just you know it's one of his favorite science fiction novels yeah yeah so on um now your future as a writer where do you plan on taking it?
1: I would, just for the simplicity of it, I would obviously love to be traditionally published. Sure. And somebody else handles all the things I don't want to handle. And
0: but as you're becoming a publisher now too. Right. I'm just curious. So you got writing and then you got publishing. So obviously the publishing bug hasn't fully bitten you yet.
1: Right now, the publishing element feels like a vehicle for our group to put out work that we uh, all get value from. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for this anthology, for example, it'll be another book that we can all take to cons when we want to sell it. Right. Um, and it's another vehicle for all of our work to find new readers. Um, but we also do want to well, – the, the anthology I want to edit, I do want to expand this vehicle to also – Pull other writers into this car that we have. So I, th- I think this is—it's something that's going to, I think, become a, an increasingly significant part of my career. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm still going to be always a writer first. My my main focus is always going to be on um, putting out my own work, writing my own stories, um, and teaching.
0: Good. It's like Kevin Anderson. He was writing. He get books. You know, he did traditional because that was his time period mm-hmm. and as he got more and more into it where they have they have a, a timeline a curve that they use in, in publishing houses and once it's run its course they're done with that book mm-hmm. as an author you're not done with that book but if you don't have a, a place to to take it to which is what he was running into mm-hmm. he created his own publishing house wordfire to be able to have a place for his books to get their their second wind yeah and He became a publisher, so he had that was a necessary evil to begin with to be able to deal with that. But then he got into a similar thing, what you're doing there, where he would find other what he thought were totally worthwhile books that would not see the light of day through traditional publishing to give them that helping hand. Some of these things were the the big giants from the 30s and 40s that needed to get something. Mm -hmm. You know, they deserved to live on, and they had no place to go. So he took them on, and He's got, he's grown. He's got a huge publishing house now. Yeah, you know. So that's why I was wondering about that because, you know, I, I would don't resist it too hard. Right. I mean,
1: I would never be averse to our Kickstarter's overfunding by hundreds of percent and us having <laughs> being able to to grow and do more things and take on more projects. I, I wouldn't be averse to that, um, at all because I think that you know because I'm a writer and know having a tool to put out my writing which is how kevin uses word fire sometimes also yeah um and you know given that we're also you know word fires kevin but ours is a collection of a, a bunch of us so all of us having this vehicle this tool to use to uh, increase the reach of, of our work and to build a community of um both fans and just um writers mm-hmm. uh, just just people to, to connect people together that want to connect that want to talk to each other that want to pursue the same thing
0: so do you have like right now you've got some the merry band of publishers
1: yes (laughs) yes we do
0: so does your llc eventually up so you're going to be like the the president or ceo and then you have because you need to have your corporate structure too you need to have a treasurer and you had Mm -hmm. vice president or something to that effect, at least imagine you yeah. have at least three people.
1: Yep. We do. Um, like I said, I'm the managing member. So I, I, I oversee, I sign contracts. Um, I handle the like managing minutia that goes into keeping our LLCs, like licenses and stuff and any state requirements mm-hmm. up to code. I'm also going to be, we, you know, cause we haven't done any financing really yet. We, we, we have a bank account. We had to obviously to sure. do a Kickstarter. Um, We'll, we're going to figure that out, I think, okay, well, when we come good. to it. Um, but right now, because the other cool thing about doing it as a Kickstarter is that the idea is that we don't end up taking in that much more than it costs us to put this out. You know, once we pay all of our reprint authors and pay our per word rates to our, our original authors and, you know, pay for the shipping of the books and all this stuff, uh, the idea is for the first one not to have a ton left over to kind of. You know, we'll still, we would still be able to sell it through our site and uh, through uh, KDP and all that stuff. So we might sell some copies afterward, you know, sure. because we're not going to stop promoting it. Um, but the idea isn't right now to make a bunch of it. I mean, we wouldn't be averse to making a bunch of extra money on it. Yeah. But we see this as kind of more of, of, of a zero sum for a first try here, just to make sure that we make enough to put it out, get the people that want it so they can have it, start building this community, start building this base of writers that can benefit from or take interest in this kind of work.
0: That's amazing. That's a, an amazing purpose, and that's why I'm so excited about promoting this. We've gone through our hour, which I didn't think we'd have much problem doing that. Oh. And so, um, anyway, so, yeah, anybody listening to this, I'm going to have also on the uh, on the page where I, where I list this podcast uh, how to be able to participate and, and find out about the Kickstarter, and I'll also be doing the promotion on this as well on social media for this to, to help make sure this thing is as successful as it can possibly be because I need a copy of this in the Writers of the Future library when it gets done. And you will Signed get one. by all of you. And you will get one. Excellent. Well, thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., canada the uk australia and south africa and available everywhere via amazon.com we are especially appreciative of our sponsor carnation for supporting this podcast carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by ellen hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged it is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy again thank you very much storm thank you